We are continuing our six-part series, a conversation on holiness and what it looks like to be in the new year. Not the new you, but the real you. Who are you in Christ, and what does that do for our holiness? That's what we're processing. Now, the title of this morning, just to be cute with words, is the new you, part one. The new man and what it looks like to be in Christ. And we'll be looking at Galatians chapter 2. Just as a bit of a backdrop, we're kind of building. The first week we looked at 1 Peter and really processed the concept of indicatives leading to imperatives. Again, that may sound confusing, but that it's what is true of you first that leads to the commandment of what to do, the commands of holiness. Uh, Last week we looked at Romans 12, 1 and 2. And Paul says, you know, by, by the, because of the mercies of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is holy and pleasing. And primarily, we're doing that by the renewal of our mind. The transformation comes when our minds are renewed. This week, we're, so there, there's a continuation. And then this week, we're going to talk about the particular, what it looks like. What would it look like to actually find those places in your brain in your mind, in your body, soul, however you want to conceive of you, where, where you're not following the gospel. That's the goal. We're trying to define where we're not following the gospel. Um, so let me say this. A lot of people are irritated by the language, sanctification is just remembering your justification. And I would agree, it's annoying. But what I will tell you is this. When you do understand what justification by faith means, and you're grasping it, in the deep, dark recesses of your being, that's where you'll be sanctified. But it's incredibly hard work. So please hear me. There, you're not saved by works, but it's really hard work to believe that. Does that make sense? I, don't want, I think the two errors are, I've got to work my way into heaven. Of course not. Or, oh, it's all because of Jesus. I don't do anything. No, you, you do a lot. Like, it's going to be painful to find those places where you don't live according to the gospel, and then to expose them to Jesus and to be renewed. So let's look at Galatians 2.20. Actually, we're going to look at verses uh, 11 to 21. Uh, Midweek, I just could not figure out how to make this into one sermon. So we have two sermons. Next week, we're going to continue and look at just the verse 2.20. And next week, we're going to hone in on the concept of union with Christ. This week we're going to focus more on justification by faith. What is, what is Christian righteousness? The backdrop to Galatians is, it's probably Paul's earliest letter. Um, there's a real dilemma in Galatia. In fact, it's so pronounced that Paul, right around the time where he's still gushing with praises in his other letters, in verse 6, he's like, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. Like, he's mad. In fact, he says, these people have infiltrated your community with a false gospel, and it's not even a gospel at all. He adds to that by saying, if an angel or myself or another apostle gives you something other than the gospel, may they be eternally condemned. Paul is passionate about the purity of the gospel for transformation. And by the time we get to chapter 2, verse 11, he's ready to give us an example. It's a little bit confusing language. But he's going to give us an example of Peter. Here he's named Cephas or Cephas, however you want to pronounce it. Um, I'll read it as that, but when I talk about it later, I'll call him Peter. 
So let's start in verse 11. What he's, just to remind us what's happening, Paul is transitioning from an earlier scenario, not in Galatia, but somewhere else, Antioch, that reminds him of what's happening in Galatia where he's writing this letter, to, or the people that are receiving this letter, and he's going to transition in chapter 3, which we don't read today or at all, with really directing the message to those people. But here we are in chapter 2 where he highlights the theology. Verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he, that's Peter, was eating with the Gentiles, But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, How can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified I want to pause and accept. This is confusing, right? This is hard language. Wait for it. That's why I'm preaching a sermon on it. So if you're confused, if it's hard, breathe. Let's keep reading together. But, it, but I hope by the end of the sermon, you'll have at least a little more understanding of what's going on in here. Verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we are too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be the transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And here's our key verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us a gospel that is so pure and so glorious that we don't know what to do with it, and we add things to it that destroy it. Teach us this morning to long for the purity of the gospel Teach us by your spirit to find those places in our lives that are still conformed to the old rules of law. Let those be exposed that we may repent and freshly experience the joy of the gospel. In your name we pray, amen. This this letter of Galatians was Luther, Martin Luther's favorite letter. Um, He either called his wife Kate his Galatians, but I think what he actually did was he called his wife, Kate, wait, how, how did I say that? He called this book his Kate. He did one or the other. Someone knows out there. The point is he really loved his wife, but he really loved Galatians. Men, any of you have a struggle there? Like, I really love you, honey, but I love 
Galatians as well. I'm going to buy Galatians a present. Luther, as you know, is a man that uh, was a fire. I mean, he lit the Reformation in the 1500s. He, he struggled for years with keeping the law. He read the law and he tried to keep the law. Imagine that. And other people just kind of said, you can't keep all the law. Well, when he kept going back to confessional after confessional after moment after moment, they start saying, you need to go to seminary. Maybe that'll dry you out and make you boring. And it's in seminary where he continued to believe the gospel, or where he discovered the purity of the gospel, and that's where he launches the 95 Theses, and he's, he's becoming kind of a firebrand that starts the Reformation. Now, if you study the Reformation, there's a lot of other moving pieces, but no doubt Luther's grasp of justification by faith is a major, major ingredient to what, ex- what starts the Reformation. Years later, he wrote uh, a commentary on Galatians, and then about 10 years later, when it was reprinted, he wrote a preface. And that commentary and that preface have been significantly used by God. John Bunyan is one person who says, outside of the Bible, his favorite book is Luther's uh, writing on Galatians, his commentary. Another person, there's other people that have been transformed by it, but I want to just come to the preface and, and say a few thoughts and then... Um, jump into our discussion. He says, the passive righteousness is a mist of God is a mystery that the world cannot understand. And indeed, Christians never completely understand it themselves. And thus, Christians do not take advantage of it when they are troubled and tempted. So we have to constantly teach it, repeat it, and work it out in practice. Anyone who does not understand this righteousness or cherish it in the heart and conscience will continually be buffeted by fears and depression. Nothing gives peace like the doctrine and the reality of passive righteousness. By passive righteousness, what what Luther is talking about, and we're going to pick up with Paul, is the fact that you are evaluated by one thing and one thing only, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Our problem is we say, great, thank you, I believe that, And then we have all other sorts of ways we evaluate ourselves, other conduct we do. So our fallen condition is that we go back to the ways we evaluated ourselves before Christ. And like our forebearers, Adam and Eve, we kind of get nervous that God can't deliver us, so we're going to figure out our own methods. And that's what I'm going to prove this morning in in our conversation. So I'm going to begin by defining some of these words. Some of these words are really hard. I paused even in the middle of our reading to say this is difficult. And the words I want to pick apart are righteousness, justification, and law. Okay, these are three words we're going to look at. Um, Vocabulary is important. If you have invested a significant amount of money into a certain stock, and you're like me, you don't really understand what they're saying on CNBC. You don't turn it off. If you turn it on and, and you hear there's a dip and they're talking about the company you've put all your money in, you don't go, well, I don't get that vernacular. It's over my head. I'll just turn it off. You, what do you do? Like you listen. You try to understand it. Maybe you ask someone for help. You want to know the vocabulary. And so Christians, let me just say this to us. In the modern era, we need to continue to understand a vocabulary that's in the Bible. That yes, the Bible, we want to make sure it's in our own vernacular But when you come to words like righteousness and justification and law that Paul is using over and over, 
let us lean in and try to understand those words. So I'm going to do my best to make those words less mystified quickly. And I'm going to leave some of you completely unsatisfied, others hopefully just ecstatic. That's who I'm after. Okay, just kidding. Righteousness. What is righteousness? So the root of righteousness, as it's, a, as it's brought out in the Bible, is really a right relationship to something or someone. Okay? When you pay your electric bill, you're right by them. Okay? You're, you're simply back to, we're back to good. Uh, if, you're, if you play poker, which you shouldn't do, just kidding. We have a men's group that plays poker. It's a joke. Uh, just be very cautious. You do what your conscience tells you. When there's chips put into the pile, Aaron, you're the dealer. What do you say? The pot's, the pot's right. The pot's correct. The pot is right. And everybody's like, ah, oh, we can play the next hand and see that I didn't get what I wanted. So what does it mean to be righteous? It means to be right. Um, this plays out in our culture a few, a few different ways. It's funny how... Uh, I've just been teasing my own kids a little bit about this, but young people, we have this new thing we say instead of like, it's my pleasure, which Chick-fil-A says, or I, I, you're welcome, or the, we say, you're good. Have you all heard this? You're, have you said it? I say it now. You bump into somebody, what do you say? Not excuse me, but you're good. What are you saying? You're saying we're back to normal. There was a moment where there could have been tension. We could have been in conflict. You're good means we're right with each other. Okay, that's righteous, quickly. Moving on. Uh, justification. Okay, the actual Greek for justification is to be counted righteous. That's important. You're not actually righteous. You're counted as righteous. Now, that may sound negative at first. Like, I want to be righteous. Well, that's the goal of growing in holiness. But it really is, I want to convince you, amazing to be counted as righteous. Two examples. I pull into the convenience center. Anyone do this on Perkins with a load of, of just junk? Anyone? Just raise your hand. I just need to know someone's on the convenience center. The problem is you pull into that place and they start telling you the law. Like, okay, if it's plastic, it's this much. If it's wood, I'm like, I thought this was like free and convenient. No, no, no. So the boss comes out, looks at the back of my truck. I'm borrowing Denny Tools truck. It's filled with every kind of thing. And... Um, so I have like a plastic, one of those little cars that kids, you know, do the flip, flip you know, those deals. You know, it's the baby. We're getting rid of ours. There it is. Sorry if you wanted it. And I put two of those really cruddy Adirondack chairs out that break because I'm 200 pounds plus. And so those are sitting there and the man comes up and says, it's five bucks. And I'm thinking for the, just, I kind of look over at the chairs. He goes, yeah, they're both five. All of it's five bucks. Oh, okay. So it went from like, $15 to five, okay. By the end of the load, what should have been like $150 was like 15. He counted it, he, he accepted it. And I was very, very thankful. I didn't go, wait a minute, let's get the rules out and let's go item by item. I just left there knowing he and I were good. We were right. If you're a student and you're finishing your, your semester and to get an A, you need a 95 on the test, and the professor passes out the test, and you got an 85. Then he says, but I did a curve, and we're going to add 10 points to your test. You don't say, don't want that. You receive it. And then if someone says, did you make an A? You don't say, not really. You say, yeah, I made an A. It was counted. Okay. 
So what we want is to be counted as righteous. That's what justification is. And then the last concept I just want to play with a little bit is the law. When you start reading Galatians and getting into the gospel, the, the word law can be very, very tricky because we tend to, is it the Ten Commandments? Is it the ceremonial law? What do we mean by law? And I want to just simply say this. Don't think so much as what the law is in, when you're reading Paul here as much as your position to the law. There's a difference, okay? The posi- in other words, is the law over you or not? That's what's going on. So the law is, there's a lot of great laws in our world. We need laws to live. The issue is we don't want them to rule over us. That's what we're going to talk about a little bit more this morning. When a law or our version of a rule starts to make me feel and behave differently because I'm being ruled by it. Does that make sense? Um, Luther and his, and his, preface to Galatians, he says this. He says, now, when it comes to righteousness, there are many kinds of righteousness, political or civil righteousness, cultural righteousness, ethical righteousness. But his point is, all of these righteousnesses are there to help you live. The law is there to help you make it through the day, make it through your life. But the one, the one righteousness you need to get to heaven and to get your sense of self from is the Christian righteousness, which is the righteousness imputed to you by Jesus. Okay, here's the premise. Theologically, a lot of you, if you're a Christian, you believe this. If you're a Christian and you're in this room, a lot of us say, I totally believe in justification by faith. But my urging for you this morning is to believe me that it's very, very slippery. People have even gotten mad at me because we use the term like, do you get the gospel? I think it's a fair question. I mean, the point I would make is when we're not living with joy and peace and patience, when we're not being the Christians we believe the Bible teaches, we're not in that moment getting the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean we've left salvation behind. You're a Christian, but you're trying something else out for your perfection. Isn't that what was going on in Galatia? In the very next chapter, that's what Paul says. You foolish Galatians, you've, you've started being perfected by works of the law. Okay, point number two is our case study. Here's our case study of everything I've just said, Peter. Right, do you know much about Peter? Um, Backstory, he's with Jesus, all of Jesus' ministry. Peter's kind of the spokesperson. If ever there's a disciple that's gonna speak up positively or negatively, it's Peter. Um, Positively, he was the first to say, you're the Messiah. The keys of the kingdom were handed to Peter in that passage. But then Peter also right then says to Jesus, you will not die. And what does Jesus tell him? Get behind me, Satan. Now, did Peter really become Satan? No. He was living in a way not in line with the gospel in that moment. Peter was also fairly racist um, in the sense of the Jewish versus the Gentile sense. So it's he that God uses to introduce the Holy Spirit to the Gentile world through in Acts 10 by going to the house of Capernaus. Um, I just said his name wrong. I knew I would do that. Not Capernaus. Cornelius. I'm glad somebody's paying attention. When you get the, So he goes to Cornelius' house. He's on the roof. And God shows him all of these food items that for all of his life were wrong to eat. Don't eat that food. And now the Lord Jesus, who's ascended and, and speaking to Peter, says, take and eat. And it was hard for Peter to believe that that law was no longer in place. 
Now, fast forward to this Antioch scene. I want to give you a picture. Peter is an apostle in Jerusalem. Uh, Paul has come and been um, approved by, the, by Peter, James, and uh, John, and he's now gone on to his missionary journeys. And over time, Gentiles are coming to Christ. In Acts 15, you have what's called the Jerusalem Council. There's this constant interaction between the whole church. How do we bring Jews and Gentiles together? And at some point, Peter goes on a type of tour. And he comes to Antioch, and he's living like a Gentile. That means he shows up, and he's not separating himself. He's not trying to keep him his Jewish laws intact. He's actually like eating the foods that the Gentiles eat. He's, maybe he's not washing his hands. Who knows all the things he's doing like the Gentiles. And then a group of people from James show up. And I'm not sure why they were there. They're not even bad guys. They're doing nothing wrong. They just continue to say, we follow the law. There's nothing wrong in that. I mean, they want to do that, fine. But what's wrong is as they're going to their tent, as they're doing their eating and their thing, Peter feels tension. He feels like, oh, what am I doing out here? I should be in there. And so he goes and begins to eat with the Jews, which tells the Gentiles, you guys are less than. You are not who you need to be. There's more work to be done, which is the very problem you find in Galatians. Now, had we met Peter and Paul had not done what he did, which we're going to talk about, Peter would not say, I've changed my gospel. I now believe that you go to heaven through works. Do you hear me? He would have never said that. If you read to him, your best definition of justification by faith, Peter, walking, still wiping the food off his mouth from this meal with the Jews, would have said, I totally believe that. Do you hear me? He didn't know it existed. He didn't see that part of his life. It was not exposed. So last week we talked about through the mercies of God, we have sacrifices, living sacrifices by the renewal of our mind. Peter's mind, his body, had not yet come to full sanctification he had areas where he was still living according to the old law that he didn't realize. So he needed Paul to oppose him to his face. Imagine, I guess that maybe an example would be if you've come to the conclusion after years of never touching alcohol that it's okay to drink occasionally, moderately, etc. And then say a family member shows up and they don't drink alcohol and they think you're gonna, you shouldn't drink alcohol and you just feel your body go, I've got to get all of it out of the house. I've got to, not because you're trying to be helpful and wise and loving, but just that fear that grips you, that I've got to continue to stay in their good graces. I want them to continue to value me. So that's really the key to understanding Peter's behavior. Look at verse, I don't know if it's still behind me, but verse 12, I'll read the latter half to you. But when they came, that's, the Jew, that's those from James, he, Peter, drew back and separated himself, fearing. He feared the circumcision party. So let me try to bring this together. Whatever you fear is, what, is where you find your righteousness. Like, what is it that you fear? Who can expose you? What can expose you? For Peter, they came, he was fearful. What was he afraid of? that they would not think he was as holy as they are. 
That's what he was afraid of. He had a fear. And because of that fear, which was misplaced, his version of righteousness was no longer God and his law. It was simply this group of people. His relationship to those people are what dominated his thoughts. So in, when you go through the sonship course, it becomes kind of a joke about what's your righteousness? Where do you find your righteousness? And I say it's a joke because we realize we have so many areas by which we evaluate ourselves, and I've talked about mine in the past, just a very minimal one, uh, is being on time. I just talk about it. I, for me, I have to be on time. I don't know where that came from. I don't think it's necessarily healthy, especially in our marriage. 82% of our fights are about being on time. 82%? Um, if you really, what are you, what's going on? I just like to be on time. It's my, it's my Myers-Briggs. It's my uh, whatever. What's the new one? Enneagram. I'm an Enneagram, whatever. I have to be on time. Okay. Or I fear what the people will think of me when I'm late. If you really distill what I'm doing, I need some reason to be righteous. And I can tell you right now, when I'm on time, I feel better about me. I woke up late yesterday. I slept in later yesterday than I normally do. I won't even say the time. It wasn't that bad, but I don't want to throw that into the mix because some of you will say you're lazy. Others will say, oh, that's pretty early for me. Okay. But I told them, I was like, I just feel lazy. And it's because I have some law in my head that says you are not productive if you give up after a certain time. And that began to affect the way I felt about me. And it took me a while to see that. These are just minor things. Racism is a major thing. The question is, are you even aware of the countless ways you allow yourself to be evaluated by your own conscience, right? You're evaluating yourself by your own mind by these crazy laws. And so Luther talks about that. He actually has this fascinating thing in his preface um, where he says, listen, the distinction between righteousness and unrighteousness, or excuse me, Christian righteousness, which is passive, and active righteousness, which is all the ways you're trying to perform, it's easy to utter in words, but it's in use, it's very difficult. So I challenge you to exercise yourself continually in these matters through study and reading and meditation on the word and prayer, so that in the time of trial, you'll be able to both inform and comfort both your conscience and others. What's he saying? Are you, the word, this is hard work. Like This is really hard work. You're not saved by works, but it's really overwhelming to notice the number of places Jesus isn't enough for me. The number of spaces in my life where I need something plus Jesus or he's completely on the side. So listen to how he does this. He has this interesting dialogue. By the way, his preface to Galatians is three pages. You can find it online. There's different versions that have been translated, easy to read. But he, here's, here's Luther's uh, action. He says, Oh, law, you would climb into the kingdom of my conscience, and there you would reign and condemn me for sin, and would take me from the joy of my heart, which I have by faith in Christ, and you would drive me to despair, that I might be without hope. You have overstepped your bounds. Know your place. This is Luther talking to some made-up law. But do you hear the action and the work he's going through? He's acknowledged that in some, some way, some law, whether biblical law or man-made law, whether good law or bad law, has moved from where it belongs, 
which is in our body, you know, we need to have rules and rhythms and things we do, but it's moved into his conscience and it's begun to make him doubt himself and struggle. So he goes on to say, know your place. You are a guide for my behavior, but you are not savior and Lord of my heart. I am baptized and through the gospel I'm called to receive righteousness and eternal life, so trouble me not. For I will not allow you to so intolerably a tyrant and tormentor to reign in my heart and conscience. Wow, that's a pretty big, like, that's work. Have any, raise your, I'd love to, raise your hand if that's your morning quiet time. Right. I mean, that's kind of what he's saying. Like, like this is hard work. So, what would it look like to actually start to believe that right this second, no matter what you think, no matter what you feel, no matter what you have, no matter what problems are going on, whatever, no, no matter what, God delights in you. God loves you. God accepts you. Right, we have in our um, worship guide on the very front, if you have it, Charles Spurgeon says these words. He says, remember therefore, it is not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even faith in Christ that saves you. Though that is an instrument, but it's Christ's blood and his merits. Therefore, look not so much to thy hand with which thou, I'm going to read the modern. Do not look so much to your hand, which you are grasping to Christ, but look to Christ. Not to your hope, but to Jesus, who is the source of your hope. Not to your faith, but to Jesus, who is the author and the finisher, perfecter of your faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. Keep thine eyes simply on him. Let his death, his sufferings, his merits, his glories, his intercession, his fresh upon them, be fresh upon thy mind. When you're, when you're waking in the morning to look to him, when you lie down at night, look to him. Oh, let not your hopes or fears come between you and Jesus. Follow hard after him, and he will never fail you. Is that the Jesus we know? Jesus loves to credit you with righteousness. He's already done that. And now he's saying, hey, live out of that reality. What would it look like if you began to believe that and that sunk into your life? I want to just close with an example. Uh, I mentioned John Bunyan. There was another person, actually two men, James and Charles, or John and Charles Wesley. And it was Charles first who um, came across this preface to Galatians in the entire commentary. And he and here's the thing I want you to hear. He labored in it, like he read the thing, but he it didn't just pop. He struggled. He struggled for a lifetime. Like he was already in Georgia on mission trip trying to start some sort of movement for Christ. It was failing. I don't know if you know the history. He goes back home, meets Whitfield. They already know each other, but then the ministry really kicks off. But this, this great awakening, which is about to happen, partly happens because of Luther's commentary. 
And Charles Wesley reads these words. I'm going to read them from the preface. And I just want you to hear them for a moment. The question that Luther is asking is this. Is there anything we have to do to obtain the righteousness of Jesus? Anything at all? Anything? No. Nothing at all. For this righteousness comes by doing nothing, hearing nothing, and knowing nothing. But rather in knowing and believing this only, that Christ has gone to the right hand of the Father, not to become our judge, but to become for us our wisdom, our righteousness, our holiness, our salvation. God sees no sin in us, for in this heavenly righteousness sin has no place. So now we may certainly think, Although I still sin, I don't despair because Christ lives, who is both my righteousness and my eternal life. Now, Charles Wesley is not an antinomian. Charles Wesley is not licentious. Charles Wesley didn't read these words and say, then forget it all. I'm going to open a bar. Go crazy. He was the one, he and his brother John, that spark the Great Awakening, he writes, I don't know, like 6,000 hymns. In fact, the hymn that he wrote based on this experience, we're going to sing it next week. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be, that thou, my God, would die for me? He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. He emptied himself of all but love and blood for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke, the dungeon flamed with light. He's in a prison and it just lit up, and the doors are open because of this doctrine and this reality. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, you have that. The door is open, you are free. Paul, later in chapter five, will say, it's for freedom you've been set free. Are you living out of that reality, or are you going backwards and basing how God views you on the things you're doing and creating a scaffolding of law that nobody could live under. My prayer is that as we go through this series, we will meditate on these realities and we will feel that Jesus' righteousness will free us to be the people he was designed us to be, the real us, the real you. Let's pray. Father, what a rich, rich reality. You are righteous, and we are in right relationship with you because Jesus' merit. We are now counted as righteous. And Lord, we know that on our own, apart from Jesus, we don't have righteousness. But Lord, we long for this relationship with you through your Son and the Spirit, that we would rest and have peace, that that might free us to do good things for your glory, things we would have never dreamt of if we were doing them to feel better about ourselves. Teach us, Lord, to live out of that mercy. Amen.